Welcome to Our Seven Neighbors, Season 3, Birth of a Chicago Civil Rights Movement, Stories from the Archives. Brought to you by the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. I'm Kim Schultz, producer of the podcast. Each week, we pair an interview from the Jesse Jackson Oral Archive Project with a special guest, doing the work of justice today to reflect and engage racial equity then and now. But before we get to the discussion, let's bring in our host, Reverend Brian E. Smith. Thanks, Kim. For this episode, we welcome the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, and I'm looking forward to being in conversation with him. But before we get to that conversation, let's go to the archives. Let's take a listen to this short clip from an interview with Dr. Reverend David Wallace. I had the joy of speaking with Reverend Wallace a few months back as part of our Jackson Oral Archive project. It was a riveting conversation where I learned so much from his profound knowledge of the civil rights movement in Chicago. Reverend Wallace was a key player working alongside Reverend Jackson and one of the primary organizers of the Chicago Breadbasket Movement. Let's take a listen. So you make your way to the Chicago Theological Seminary as a young student, and you meet two other gentlemen. What was it like at CTS? And tell me how you met these two gentlemen. I got there a year ahead of Jesse and Gary. So I was married, and we got to Chicago and got settled and stuff. And then next year, here come in the new class, here comes Gary and Jesse. And then when Bloody Sunday took place in 1965, the whole nation was in uproar because it was on the evening news. Jesse came down to my room and said, we got to do something about this. And so we started working, organizing then. And the next day or so, we took a third of our faculty and a quarter of our student body and formed a caravan. And Dr. Shomer didn't want us to go. He said, you guys need to stay here and study for those quarterfinals coming up. And we said, no, our Church history professor Franklin Tell said, you know, sometimes you got to get caught in the act. When we came back from Selma and we were doing it, I know that summer while Jesse was out searching out churches, he was also selling jet on the L. And I understand Mayor Daly offered him a job out on the Skyway. But Jesse said, no, not. Mm -mm. He had a letter of recommendation from his governor of North Carolina, but Jesse turned that down. And then we went into the Urban Training Center that fall. Well, by late August, Dr. King had decided they, they were debating what would be the first northern city. And I think Andy Young and some of them wanted to go to New York and somebody was pushing for Cleveland. And, but apparently the CCCO leadership here in Chicago was probably more organized and had been working together on the school situation and other the days of the Willis wagons, the temporary school. And so Dr. King and them chose to come here. And there's a major meeting out at the YMCA camp in Wisconsin, the Lake Geneva. Dr. Pritchard was there. Dr. Pritchard was administrative assistant to Al Raby, who was head of the CCCO. That, so he was right in there. And he was our professor in the morning. And we'd be out organizing in the evening. He also was involved with the cocoa as well as the CCCO stuff. This was a CCCO project in cocoa. So when Dr. King decided to come, 
the secular leadership were really distrustful of the ministers because they had seen the ministers sell out to the machine. And the machine had, had leverage. Uh, they would come in, oh, your lighting is really, you could have spent a couple hundred thousand dollars improving that lighting and stuff. And, you know, those kinds of threats, intimidation and stuff. So that they were afraid that they could not trust the ministers. Well, Dr. King said, well, I got a program for the ministers called Operation Breadbasket. They had something they had done down in the South. They had picked it up from Reverend Leon Sullivan in Philadelphia, who had developed a selective buying campaign. Dr. King and Dr. Abernathy picked it up, took it to the South and named it Operation Breadbasket. And so he suggested, well, we got a place for the ministers. And keep them out of the hair of the secular. We'll take care of the real leadership activity, and we'll just set the ministers over here. That's fantastic. And so we decided to have a meeting of the ministers to see if this was acceptable to them. And Clay said, bring them to my church. He was president of a Baptist minister's conference at that point, so he had access to a lot and knew the other leaders of minister's conference. And so... Dr. King and Dr. Abernathy were scheduled to come in. And so we were meeting on Fridays over at Pastor Clay's church. We were out of the hair of the civil rights movement. They went on, did their business, and guess who still survives a few years later? Operation Breadbasket. Push. What is the misunderstanding around Breadbasket? You had shared that people think of it as this entity that was established yeah, it, it was. I mean, I think it really had its true flowering here in Chicago. It was something that Dr. King and Dr. Abernathy brought and introduced, but we took it to a whole nother level. What made Breadbasket powerful? You're talking about a diverse group of folks coming together, and what was it that made it flower in Chicago? Well, one thing, when they came together, we all recognized the same problem. Black Americans were excluded from the a- economy. And that was the cohesive element. And as the minister team began to get their marching orders, I mean, they were having a good time. Hey, we got a negotiating team, need to go out and meet with uh, Dean Milk. We need some data. Show us what your employment records are so we can see what kind of employment. We did that and had some uh, initial success, some initial boycotts, because that milk couldn't stay around too long. It had a limited shelf life, and so we exercised that. But it wasn't too long then then guys like George Jones from Joe Lewis Milk and Daryl Grisham from uh, Parker House Sausage and other black businesses came knocking on the door and said, hey, wait a minute, you guys got something going here. We can't get our products on the stores in our own neighborhood. Can you help us? That was new. They hadn't done that in the South. But with Chicago being a center of black business, you know, it was a natural here. And we started meeting the businessmen. We started meeting Saturday morning, breakfast over at CTS in McGifford Hall. And then, man, it wasn't long with that. We have four or 500 people meeting there. Other cities begin to see this. And so Dr. King asked, suggested to be a national director and carry this to elsewhere. So we did that. 
And I know I spent time in Indianapolis in particular and Cincinnati and others of us kind of fanned out while he would make the rounds and open doors and stuff with local pastors in those cities. Eventually, Breadbasket went across the country from New York to Los Angeles. Wow, so much to dig into. But first, let me introduce my guest, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III is pastor of the Trinity United Church of Christ, ordained in both the Progressive National Baptist Convention and the United Church of Christ, and is most recently the author of the acclaimed book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. He is a busy man pastoring, publishing, speaking, and making an extraordinary difference in the world. Welcome, Reverend Moss. Thank you so much, Reverend Brian. It's great to be on the show. Glad to be present with you. So glad that you were able to take some time to uh, be able to converse about a, a very important movement, one that impacts us to this day. I know you're very busy. So again, I appreciate you coming in and, and spending time with us. That was my delight. So within this short segment, we just shared from David Wallace his experiences in our interview, and there was a lifetime of history that was conveyed there. And I just want to ask you, as a Chicago-based faith leader, what were your first impressions when you heard that interview? Well, first, it was quite funny to hear the names Jesse and Gary as students, which just made me laugh. I said, Jesse Jackson as a student, because I always associate Jesse Jackson in this reverence. And then Gary Massoni, I realized as we had a conversation earlier that I met him when I was, I must have been junior high, and Reverend Jackson was running for president in 84, and I had to do a paper on him specifically as he was the person who was bringing Reverend Jackson into the Cleveland area. So it brought back memories and connections to not only childhood, but how important not only was the theological education of CTS, but to hear about students and faculty choosing to leave school and make a commitment to the movement from Chicago to making sure that they were connected to the trauma that was happening during the period of Bloody Sunday. I'm glad you raised that point because quite often we see them and we see the grandeur and we see the activism, but we fail to realize that they had to be trained and that they too have an origin and they had teachers. I was glad to find out, of course, that Dr. King was not afraid of intellectualism and he wanted to combine the theory with practice. And so he, he selects these young, vibrant seminary students and he says, okay, we got a movement here. Let's go forward. So like you, I, I think I was uh, very pleased to see, hey, there is a method to this madness. When we go to seminary, there's something that we can do with what we have to impact the world. What's interesting, it just struck me as you said that, what they were doing is what we would call practical theology. They were doing their intern. They were doing their CPE. It was a class. And this was independent study. And the origin of what we call seminary was on one level sequestering, but on another level, it was engagement in the practical aspects of how do we embody the faith. 
And so for many, and Reverend Jackson, I've heard him mention this before, the movement was the seminary, university, PhD program for him and for many others. Whether you talk about Fannie Lou Hamer, Septima Clark, Joanne Robinson, Rosa Parks, Claudette Colvin, uh, of course, Y.T. Walker and John Lewis and Dr. King. But many of these people, they were educated in the movement in the idea of what democracy truly means for people who have been denied participation, but were the expanders of what we call the democratic project. I agree. It was the ultimate field placement and the globe was the context. And again, we have to consider just how young they were in their 20s, <laughs> just uh, really gaining a foothold on the world. And when you talk to David Wallace, it's so fascinating. I mean, just driving down King Drive, it's like sitting next to an encyclopedia or Google. And he'll just point out different spaces. And, you know, this is the Parkway Ballroom. And this is what we did here. That's Ebenezer Missionary Baptist Church. And, and Reverend Frey K. Sims did this there. I think I shared with you, he talked about your dad. He said he really wants to meet you. So we're going to have to make that happen. It would be an honor. Yeah. So I want to ask you, when you heard this eight-minute segment, there were many names that were presented and people that are familiar with the older era of Chicago would recognize these names like Reverend Clay Evans, Mayor Daly, Al Pritchard. Did any of those names stand out for you? Well, I think most of them did. But first, Clay Evans is the unsung hero of the Chicago freedom movement and the freedom movement in general. One, as I've heard many times, that Clay Evans was one of the few people who supported the movement. Most churches did not support the movement. Let's just put that out there, not only in Chicago, but nationally. Yes. All the people who were saying they're with Dr. King now, you know, they're just not telling the truth. They were not involved. Let's just be real about that. Isn't that something how everybody says, I marched with Dr. King? And they're like, okay, well, now wait a minute. Everybody <laughs> says, there's a wonderful poem by Carl Wendell Holmes that was often used by Vincent Harding in his book, Martin Luther King Jr., An Inconvenient Hero. And he would use it when he would also lecture Dr. Harding. And the quote that I remember goes, now that he is safely dead, let us build monuments to his name. Dead men make such convenient heroes. And it's just a beautiful piece that really speaks to the truth that most people are not involved. But here's Clay Evans. Clay Evans, who some today would say comes out of a Southern conservative evangelical framework. And if memory serves me correctly, when I heard some of the oral history and they were talking about Operation Breadbasket and the work of Dr. King and things of that nature, Clay Evans in the meeting was just raised the question, show me biblically where this fits. And the conversation went to Jesus and Luke chapter four, and the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news to the poor. And they kind of walked through it. And Clay Evans, all these other ministers, names I'm not going to mention, were afraid because of the daily decree in the machine. But Clay Evans said, this is biblical. And if I'm going to be a preacher and I claim to serve Jesus, I claim to love God, 
then I have to follow this mandate. And he becomes the person who embraces the movement and then is punished by the city as a result. So Clay Evans attempts to build, physically build a new church because their church was growing. And the city of Chicago refused to give him the appropriate permits, but they did a a really cruel thing. They allowed them to start building, then they pulled the permits. So they would have this land that they could not use with some beams on it. Dr. King is then assassinated in 68. They continued to punish Clay Evans in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. It will be Clay Evans, not successor, but the third pastor of the church that he formed, who will be the one who will realize the vision that he had in the 60s, but was punished by Dr. King. That's Dr. Reginald Sharp, who's now at Fellowship and doing an amazing job. He will fulfill the vision that Clay Evans had because he took a risk and the church was punished financially for it. I'm so glad that you laid out this whole line of succession, almost like an apostolic succession of uh, civil rights leaders. And we can see now in the present age that dream realized. And I'll tell you this, I love the forward to your recent book, Dancing in the Darkness, where Michael Eric Dyson describes Black folks through this coffee bean analogy. And it seems to fit the topic that we're talking about now in this podcast. And Dyson extends this motif to describe you as one who hails from Black coffee spiritual royalty. And when I talked to David Wallace, he shared that uh, he knew your dad and now he wants to meet you. So how does it feel to have that pedigree, that lineage and hear these stories told by David Wallace? Well, first, I have to thank none other than Michael Eric Dyson for the very kind hyperbole. (laughs) I really appreciate him for writing the foreword. But it is without a doubt an honor to be able to be, let me just quote from Hamilton, to be able to be in the room where it's happening in terms of hearing the stories of my father, hearing the stories of my mother, to be a child who grew up in the push background and backyard in the barbecue when I was a little little one. <laughs> it was just coming, just showing up because I was dragged to the meetings coming from Cleveland over to, and it was Operation Push then, it wasn't Rainbow Coalition. And then being a part of the Rainbow Coalition work, being a part of the SCLC work, the SNCC work. I was not alive during then, but all of the individuals who were making this work happen. Their creative, radical, and revolutionary spiritual imaginations were functioning at such a high level. I had the opportunity to be in that space and to have someone like Brother Wallace to just say, hey, we would like to meet me. That would be an honor. I am a lover of history, a student of history, and I love sitting at the feet of our elders, just to learn. Amen. And I've crossed paths with you at PUSH and, of course, at CTS, and I appreciate your ministry. More recently, you were part of a coalition of Black ministers who marched downtown to really serve, protect, and function as an example to our young people as well as our city 
of the best that we can be. And I thank you and uh, uh, Brother Dates in particular for your response. What I want to know from you, as you talked about your youth and your exposure, how do you think we can better connect with our young people and let them know this rich heritage, this history, especially here in Chicago? You know, I think it's through storytelling. It's through the use of the arts. We have to become griots of our own story and not try to hire or expect someone else to tell our story. Then we have to be able to share in a compelling way the amazing work of our ancestors. So it means elders sitting down with poets and poets sitting down with visual artists and artists sitting down with podcasters and podcasters sitting down with preachers. And the circle then continues. And as a result, there will be a young person who will come up with a creative idea of how to share this story that we've never even conceived of. And I believe that is the way in which to share this compelling story. We need graphic novels and comic books on our story. We need music designed speaking of our story. We need workshops about the story. We need history written and we need prose that's designed around our story and essays that are created. We need every aspect because people learn differently. There are some who will learn in a very tactile way so that they can write down and take notes. There'll be others who will learn when they sit and listen to a podcast. There'll be others that will learn when they hear the sounds that are spit by an amazing poet. There'll be others who will learn when there is a mural that is painted and others who will learn through the dance and even others who will learn through the empowerment of empowerment economics. So we've got to use every aspect of learning and not think that the only way to tell the story is sit down in this room, be quiet and listen to this person lecture. Yes. Yes. And we are the total sum of our experiences. And I'm so glad you brought up the fact that we have many ways to experience, interpret and understand life. I love that idea of comic books as well. You know, I'm thinking about the series that uh, John Lewis was connected with. Oh, man, that was, you know, and he had to be convinced to do that. Yeah. He was really kind of timid about this idea, comic book, graphic. Now, he didn't understand it, but they said, you will reach a new generation if you do this. And here is the probably the best-selling graphic novel in recent memory, which introduced John Lewis to a new generation. And I'm glad you brought that up because there's an image that just blessed me so where a 12-year-old came to the Capitol to visit John Lewis. And he was dressed like John Lewis mm. from when his SNCC days. But the only reason he knew about John Lewis is someone gifted him that comic book. And because that, he became a hero. And he wanted his parents to bring him to the Capitol to meet his superhero. I mean, I thought that was just one of the most beautiful, beautiful things I had seen is this young man, 12 years old, who wanted to meet John Lewis, dressed just like him with the backpack on and everything. And they took a photograph together. And it was just because of the book March that changed this young man's life 
so that he could expand and see what heroes could be and what heroes look like. Reverend, you know, you make me think about a recent photograph that I saw. A little girl saw the actress that played Ariel in the uh, live action rendering of A Little Mermaid. A little black girl grabbed Halle Bailey and just embraced her. And I just saw that picture, of course, as a father. Well, I have a soon-to-be 21-year-old daughter. But you know how impressionable our young people are in terms of what they see in the visual aesthetics and the standards of beauty. And that little girl held on to her and would not let go. Mm. And so it was that whole image that, hey, I can be beautiful. I can be special. I can be out front. And you're illuminating that with your description of this young man who was impressed by what he saw through the arts, through this comic book rendering. Images matter. Images decolonize your imagination or colonize your imagination, depending upon what the images are. For many who are probably listening to this podcast, they still see Moses as Charlton Heston. That's a colonized image of the Bible. But your imagination can be decolonized by artistry, can be decolonized by art. And that is part of the challenge that we're facing now. That's why they're banning books is to remove imagery, to limit the imagination. And when your imagination is limited, you are then at the behest of people who do not have your best interests at heart. I did an exercise in a Bible study that I taught for young people. It was called The Blackness of the Bible. And I had them to Google God and pull up the images for God. And then I had them to Google, do that. And then I want you to Google Zeus. Mm. And what you will see are the same images. I think I did Zeus. I did God. I think I did a Roman God, but they were all a white male with a white beard. And so when you bring up the Ten Commandments and you think of the star of the Ten Commandments and you think of the imagery there, I wanted to show them the correlation and the consistency mm -hmm. of the images that are perpetuated. I mean, you Google it, you know, that's pretty much what most people will find. That's right. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now, and they have all these hippies. Yeah. <laughs> then I Googled Burger King. And, of course, everybody was in an uproar. But I said, guys, look at what you're seeing here. Look at the consistency. And look at what's being presented here. And I love your way of describing this whole notion of decolonizing your mind through the imagery, through the arts. Then also, I, I want to kind of go back to your book, because I see some correlations here in terms of how we can be delivered. And I love the chapter on beating bias. Mm. And you talk about, yeah, Reverend, I'm, I'm reading. <laughs> you talk about crying out for justice in love. And you gave this profound insight that I, I copied. It says, quote, our deliverance comes when both can listen, when there's a disagreement. and that goes for people that have hurt us, people that we love and people that maybe we don't love. But if we're going to be delivered, there's going to have to be some sort of exchange. And you talk very vividly about this whole idea of two listening so that they might hear some of the things that we've talked about, so that they might hear about these themes and, and, and go through that process of decolonizing the mind listening. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the parallels of this chapter with the activism 
that David Wallace references in his interview. Mm, that chapter that I you're speaking of is liberation listening, beating bias and utilizing this spiritual pillar of listening that leads to liberation. And the work of what Operation Breadbasket was doing and the students from CTS were participating in was a form of decolonized listening where they were willing, not seeing themselves as saviors, but recognizing that they are going into a community where it is necessary for them to listen. And one of the listening pieces as they are doing the work in Chicago, which is very fascinating, is that in secular spaces, there was this nervousness and suspicion around the church because the machine, and daily in particular, had worked very hard to co-opt black churches. They recognized the power, so they wanted to make sure that they co-opt these institutions to basically remove their radical edge so they would just work for the machine. And it was a requirement for those who worked in the movement and in the faith space to create spaces where they learned about organizing and they could listen to the critiques and they could hear where the institution could be powerful and then also hear the critiques of where the institution was lacking. And I think Wallace, he touches on it just very, very quickly talking about the, how the machine was co-opting black institutions and then shared a very unique way where there was an in run so that Dr. King and the Operation Breadbasket community would be able to circumvent these institutions and communities and basically preachers who were in the pocket of daily and do an in run and basically bring together a small cohort of people who would hear the history, hear the story, and be the cadre that would be a part of the movement in Chicago. And, and of course, we mentioned before about Clay Evans being one of the people who was a part of that cadre in those conversations and joined in with those meetings and then became joining the workshops so that he could learn and that he could teach his congregation and they could join in and be a part of this movement. You know, I was thinking about the fact that you have this unique connection to all of these pivotal organizations in this movement, including the fact that you're an alumnus of CTS, the place where they gathered, where they organized themselves to move forward with Breadbasket. And then, of course, we went into a Operation Push and the run for the presidency, so on and so forth. And then I think about the congregation that you pastor now. And if I'm not mistaken, you are looking specifically at revitalizing the 95th Street Corridor. I heard about you organizing your congregation to support a vendor of laundry detergent. Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> Am I right about that? You're right about that. Also <laughs> with uh, toilet paper, too. We found a we found a black vendor of toilet paper. He's like, you know, said we want to make sure if you're going to be understandably black, we're going to be black on every level from the detergent to, to the toilet paper. Yes. Yeah, that is true. 
<laughs> we did. It was quite funny. We're so excited to get some black laundry detergent. It's like, it's owned by black people. <laughs> it, was, it was quite, we put it in the back in the atrium and share with people. This is right before the pandemic that here is a company that is doing good work, that is hiring young people and teaching them how to be entrepreneurs. Let's support them. It's not a big company. It's not nationwide. It's more regional, but let's support what they're doing. So I want to ask you, and, and you may have answered it, but I want to bring this out again. What does the breadbasket movement mean to you, your congregation and your surrounding community? Well, the breadbasket movement gave us a model of what the kingdom of God looks like and how the kingdom of God is supposed to operate. The breadbasket model was not just a model of the liberation of black people, though that was a central tenet of the breadbasket movement. It looked at the idea of alleviating suffering for those who are on the margins of a society that is framed by the touch of human hands. That's what breadbasket does. And then it informs us on how we want to do revitalization for our community. We believe in the renaissance of, of 95th Street, not gentrification but a renaissance, just like the Harlem Renaissance. We want to revive and have a renaissance in our community. But the elevation and development of our community is not solely for those of African descent. It blesses everyone. I like to say it this way when I'm teaching class and doing a piece on preaching, I always tell that every preacher needs to be authentic in who they are. And I teach at Mercer University, uh, McAfee School of Theology, and I have a variety of students from different backgrounds, most of them from the South. And I said, when you are local, you become universal. The reason I love Toni Morrison is because Toni Morrison leans into who she is as a black woman. The reason I love Ernest Hemingway is because he leans into who he is as an individual, just as Flannery O'Connor leans into her heritage as a Catholic woman from Milledgeville, Georgia. I don't want Toni Morrison trying to write like Flannery O'Connor, and I don't want Flannery O'Connor trying to write like Toni Morrison. Lean into your localness, lean into your particularity, and you become universal in the process. And that's what we have to learn in this moment. And Breadbasket, recognize that. We're not going to whitewash your blackness, your brownness, your Latinoness, your Asianness, whatever it may be, your Caribbean. We're not gonna, we're not gonna wash that away. But when you bring it to the table, it becomes something powerful and beautiful. And that's what the democratic experiment that we know as democracy, that in these yet to be United States of America, should be moving toward. We should be moving toward recognizing that there is power in the particular that can bring us to the universal. But you don't start with the universal first. You start with the story of someone on the south side of Chicago the story of someone in the Appalachian region, the story of someone on the reservation, the story of someone who comes from Puerto Rico, the story of someone from Brazil, the story of someone from Ireland, the story of someone from Asia, the story from someone from South Asia, from the Maldives, from Bali, wherever it may be. And in the process, something happens, like in Pentecost, where we hear in our own language. We're not forced to learn someone else's language. 
We just are able to hear in our own language as someone tells their particular story. It then becomes universal. Amen. That has been this whole conversation has been so fruitful, Reverend. I think we could probably do a series. (laughs) Who knows what may come? (laughs) But I want to ask you as we close, is there anything else that you'd like to add to this conversation? For those who are listening, I would say that the work of Operation Breadbasket, the work of the Poor People's Campaign, is one of the unsung moments in American history. And let me give you a small little snippet of history that I was introduced to by Dr. Vincent Harding. I studied with him at the Isle of School of Theology when I started in the PhD program. I didn't finish, but I started there with him. And one of the assignments he gave me was to find the actual recording of Ben Branch and the Operation Breadbasket Band. And I said, well, who is this? He said, there was a band that operated at Operation Breadbasket. That job was to create the music, the setting, and the vibe for the movement. And he then told me this. He said, one of the last words that Dr. King said before he was shot was he was talking to Ben Branch and was requesting that Ben Branch play a particular song at their next meeting. And I always thought about that because I always want to know what was the song that was requested? I haven't found out. (laughs) I want to know what the song was. But Ben Branch, saxophonist, leader of a band, has a place in the movement. The person who is the chef has a place in the movement. The bricklayer has a place in the movement. The teacher has a place in the movement. The engineer, the sanitation worker has a place in the movement. The beauty of the movement, and again, this is the image of the kingdom of God, is that everyone with every particular gift has a space in this movement. Ben Branch and the Breadbasket Band, along with a new generation of people, we don't even know who they are, that will be the next generation of Ben Branches and Operation Breadbasket and will create music for a new movement. So I'm excited and honored to have this conversation, but I'm excited that you all are doing this, that there will be a new crop of people who will understand the connections in Chicago with Alabama and South Carolina and Georgia and Tennessee. And we'll see how Chicago has been one of the hubs to help shape how the kingdom of God will operate in the imaginations of 21st century seekers of love and justice. Well, I think that about covers it. And I'm so grateful for you joining me in conversation today on Our Seven Neighbors. Thank you, my brother. Oh, six. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Oh, six. (laughs) What a fantastic conversation. Please join us next time for another look back and forward with Our Seven Neighbors, birth of a Chicago civil rights movement. Stories from the archives. Thanks for listening.